Open your Bibles back to the passage we read in the beginning in Matthew chapter 18, and that's where we'll be uh, this morning. Thank you, choir. On June 17, 2015, our entire state and indeed our nation was impacted by the murder of nine people at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. The killer was now the infamous white supremacist Dylan Roof, who was trying to spark a race war. He's now been sentenced to death for the killings. He shot 77 times, each victim multiple times, then put the gun to his head and tried to shoot himself, but it didn't go off. He had failed to leave one bullet for himself. And then he said to one little girl, survivor, I'm not going to kill you so that you can tell the story. I recently was sitting in a meeting next to the pastor of First Baptist Church of Charleston. We serve on a committee together. And he's currently the president of our South Carolina Baptist Convention. And listened to him as he talked through tears about this event and the continuing impact that it's had upon him personally and the city of Charleston. He was rightly burdened that this event should draw people uh, to even more firmly reject racism and all of its evil manifestations. And he's seeking to help our state convention to be a part of that in the coming year or so in particular. But in the midst of this tragedy that brought so much pain, what has emerged to garner the world's attention is the power of the gospel seen in the spirit of forgiveness displayed by the victim's families. At his arraignment, family after family stepped to the podium to say that they forgave this angry, confused young man with evil in his heart. And those acts of forgiveness by those family families remains a powerful example of people walking in grace. Today we continue our series on the incredible life of grace. This is the sixth message. Last week we turned the corner from talking about grace as it relates to God and us, that is in our salvation, the vertical axis of grace, that it is a gift that we've received, free gift, and all those things we've been through over those first four weeks of talking about what motivates us to live in holiness in light of the fact that this is a gift, all those things we covered. Last week, we now turn to begin talking about the horizontal implications of grace. That is, how the life of grace is now to be lived out in relationship to others. As people walking by grace, we saw last week, we no longer consider other people in the same way we did before we were Christians. That should impact how we relate to people. Grace gives us the power to relate to people as they are without being judgmental or harsh because as we said last week, the old bromide there, but for the grace of God goeth I. We talked about this in relationship particularly to the political divide and the acrimony that is within our culture and how we are to live these things differently as God's people. We are only what we are because of the grace of God. We received a gift We are not better than anyone else. And today we see that when we've experienced the grace of God, it calls us to another step, and that is to become people who live with an attitude of grace toward others who have hurt us, others who have wronged us by living with a spirit of forgiveness. And so in Matthew chapter 18, we come to this story, this wonderful story of our Lord Jesus in response to a question from Peter about how many times should he forgive his brother. It's a powerful story. 
My first grade Sunday school teacher, Gladys McDowell, gave me a little book based upon it. And it's probably somewhere in a box at my house. And the illustrations in that book, the drawings telling the story, have indelibly been printed upon my mind and my heart ever since. The story is self-explanatory, isn't it? A man has been forgiven a great debt that he can never repay. Somewhere in the neighborhood, as people calculated out, perhaps of the hundreds of billions of dollars. And this should have made him a grateful man toward the king and a merciful man toward others. But it does not. And so he refuses to show the grace that he had been shown to somebody who owed him just a pittance, just a little bit. And he reveals that he is a very small man who cannot overlook a much lesser infraction done to him by someone else. And thus the king, being made aware of his ungrateful and wicked heart, gives him justice. Whereas before he had tried to show him mercy and give him grace. Jesus applies this story for us and to us because we're the target of this story. We're the intended audience. So as recipients of grace... How does this story apply to us as we think about living our lives as we walk in this world and we deal with other people? How are we to relate to other people, people who treat us wrongly, who do harmful things, sometimes wicked things to us? How are we to live? Well, first of all, in this story, as Jesus tells it, it reminds us here that a person who has a forgiving heart and spirit displayed in the real rough and tumble that sometimes characterizes human relationships, that person is the person who reveals that he or she has a new heart that has itself been touched by grace. Jesus' story about the king and the servant is told in relationship to Peter's question about how many times should I forgive my brother or fellow Christian. And in Peter's mind, he is being magnanimous to forgive three times. Remember in the text, he says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times? In Peter's mind, he's being magnanimous because in Jewish thought of that day, that forgiveness, you were being merciful and reaching the level of what forgiveness called for if you forgave somebody three times. They base that on passages like Amos 1 verse 3, Amos 2 verse 6, Job 33, 29. Remember in Amos 1... God says for three transgressions and for four. The fourth one is the one I'm going to bring judgment down upon you. And he carries it through all the surrounding nations of Israel. And he comes down in the last admonition to Israel itself and says for three transgressions and for four. That is for the fourth time. And so in Jewish theology of the day, that you were to give up to, forgive up to three times. So in Peter's mind here, he is being magnanimous. Yet when he asked Jesus about it, Jesus says, either forgive him, it's either 490 times or 77 times. The text uh, is a different way in different manuscripts. But the point being that in his kingdom, his disciples will be characterized by displaying a forgiving spirit no matter the times nor the severity of the offense. Jesus then tells us why his followers will have that type of spirit. It is because they have been forgiven far greater things by the king to whom they're in debt for their sin. That we will never forgive anyone to the level that we've been forgiven. 
And therefore, we are called to be people who forgive. C.S. Lewis captured it well in his famous quote, with which you're probably familiar, when he said, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And so Jesus tells us this story to remind us that those who have a forgiving spirit are those who display that they've really understood what it is to be forgiven. Sometimes people ask me, well, how can I know that I'm saved? And while we can point to many things like, well, have you understood the gospel? Have you understood that God made you in his image, but you sinned against him? You're accountable for that. You're facing judgment. You're under the wrath of God right now. There is distance between you and your creator. He is going to hold you accountable, and justice will be given to you. There will be eternal separation from God. And if you're going to live with God, you must be perfect. You can't give that to him. The wonderful message of the gospel is that God has acted for you by sending his son to take on human flesh, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross for your sins, counting your sins as his sins, being judicially punished for you, being buried and rising again and saying to you that if you will trust in my son, all that you owe me, all that that you're in debt to me, God says, all of your sin will be forgiven, all of it. And I will also count the righteousness of my son is your righteousness. And I'll give all of that to you as a gift. And the point is, have you received that truth? Have you depended upon what God has said that he has done for you? Have you given your life to Christ and said, I'm really depending upon this gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Apply what you have done. Forgive me. Receive me. Make me new. Give me eternal life. Have you called upon Christ to save you? We could say that in response to the question, how can I know I'm saved? Have you repented and believed and trusted? Do you see any fruit in your life that shows that you are changing from what you were before you were a Christian to now what you're becoming now that you are a Christian? You show evidence that the Spirit of God is really now living within you. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control. Do you see these things developing in your life as you pursue Jesus? Do you love the Word? Do you love the people of God, His church? Do you desire to not live in sin because you don't wish to disappoint the Lord Jesus who has delivered you and forgiven you? And to this, you ask, how can I know I'm saved? We can certainly add here, have you grasped that you have really been forgiven the inexcusable to the point that you cannot withhold forgiveness from others? A couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to the story of Brad and Heidi Mitchell. You may recall if you were here or you listened online that Brad had left a large pastorate in Michigan some years ago to become the pastor of a church here in South Carolina. Heidi was still working in Michigan. Their houses had not sold. And so Brad went ahead and and moved on to South Carolina. And after he was here, a woman contacted him about counseling her about her marriage. Long story short, he ended up seeing this woman and being involved in a three-month affair. 
Eventually, the news came out. He was fired from his church. He had to confess it before that congregation, confess it before his children. And when we looked at the story before, we focused on Brad's confession and forgiveness in relationship to the Lord and how that works out in our lives as Christians when we mess up. But as you may recall, they remained together, and now they serve in another state. They have a ministry related to strengthening and healing marriages. And it got really bad for them. Not only did he lose his job, they ended up losing about everything else. They lost 90% of their income. They lost their health insurance the retirement savings. They ended up living in the upstairs of an elderly couple's home. It got so bad that Brad would sell his blood plasma to try to raise money for his family. As a matter of fact, he sold his blood plasma 110 times. He still has scars on his arm from where he sold his blood plasma. His wife couldn't even buy a candy bar. Not only that, she had to go through the embarrassing situation of being tested for STDs. And she didn't know if her marriage would be saved, but one thing that she did in the midst of the pain and the fallout is that Heidi, we look at her side of the story now, she made a decision of her will to forgive him. And she found strength to do so in what Jesus is teaching us here. In an interview about what happened and what she did, she said that it took a single step in the beginning, a decision of her will born out of a relationship with Jesus, to forgive him. In an interview, she said she'd been taught that forgiveness was not optional in the Christian faith. It was required by God. This was easy to accept when trivial transgressions were involved, but now she was facing a test like no other. Would she continue to walk with her Savior and walk in forgiveness, or would she at this moment choose to break stride? Here's what she said. She said, my conclusion was that Christians don't get to pick and choose what they want to forgive and what they don't. The Bible says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. She said, I didn't see any wiggle room in that. As Christ had forgiven me for my sins, I needed to offer grace to Brad. Otherwise, bitterness would consume me. And bitterness is poison in the soul of a Christian. I didn't know if our marriage would be saved, but I knew that I needed to forgive him. And it was tough, it was straining, it was difficult. She said that um, she didn't feel like forgiving him because she was hurting so badly. But she said she was determined. And she said, I knew that if I made the choice to offer forgiveness, the feelings might eventually follow, maybe. But she said, grace is a decision before it's an emotion. And sometimes our emotions get in the way of our doing what we're supposed to be doing with our wills. She went on to say, it wasn't easy. It was emotionally painful for me to forgive Brad, but it was mentally painful. It was physically painful. It was relationally painful. But it didn't compare to the pain Jesus endured for me on the cross when he purchased my forgiveness. In light of what Christ went through, how could I withhold forgiveness from Brad? You know what that tells me? That tells me that Heidi Mitchell is a Christian. Heidi Mitchell knew what it was herself to have the unforgivable forgiven the point that she could not withhold forgiveness from her husband when he did a horrible thing toward her. Heidi had a new heart herself due to God's grace, and she could only extend grace. And so I want to say to you this morning, as we think about Jesus' story and the applications of it for our lives, that the willingness of a heart to forgive 
as a person who professes to be a follower of Jesus, if this is how you're turned, how you're walking in your life, that is part of the evidence that you have a new heart, that you've understood the grace of God, that you are living your life out of that, and that's such an encouraging thing. Well, let's go a little bit farther along. This story also reminds us that an unforgiving heart is a cause of great concern. If we press Jesus' story further, for a person to say they're a Christian and then have an unwillingness to forgive, it should be a matter of grave concern. Notice Jesus' words. I didn't write them. I didn't make them up. These are his words. If you're using a red-letter version of the Bible, these are in red. And so Jesus said this in verses 34 and 35. In answer, or in anger, his master handed him, that is the man who wouldn't forgive, handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus said, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Obviously, Jesus here is talking about ultimate judgment. And it is unending judgment, for this man will never be able to repay the debt he owes. He couldn't pay it beforehand. He certainly can't pay it now. And he's talking here about ultimate judgment because this man went out into eternity without his debt being forgiven. The point of the story is related to our sin and the fact that his sin was not forgiven because he would not forgive somebody else, which is exactly what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 6 in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. As Jesus here going away from the gospel of grace, saying that my salvation is dependent upon an act that I take to forgive someone, is that how we should take these words? We've been talking for six weeks now, haven't we, about salvation is a what? It is a gift. So how does this play? How does this work together? Well, Jesus is not saying here that for us to be forgiven, we must act along with other actions to forgive so as to make ourselves right with God. No, his point is that if you and I are unwilling to forgive horizontally, that is other people, then we have never grasped nor experienced grace for ourselves. Thus, our sins have not been forgiven because we've never truly understood the gravity of our own sin and the need of our own forgiveness, and have not really experienced that, obviously, and the weight that has been lifted from us if we're not willing to forgive somebody else. For if you've seen your sin, and you've experienced, as the old hymn used to say, the burden of our hearts at the cross, at the cross, right? The burden of my heart rolled away, the burden of my sin rolled away. If you cannot forgive others, then there's no way you can live if, you've, if you have really experienced the forgiveness of God, then there's no way then you cannot forgive others. So let me ask you this morning as we think about the incredible life of grace. Is there someone or more than someone that you're refusing to forgive? Someone you say that you have forgiven, but you really haven't for you hold something over them. 
You say, oh, I've forgiven that. But you really haven't. You passively, aggressively still try to punish them. You try to hold it over them. You remind them of it. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not keep a record of wrongs. But you can pull out your little book of all the record of wrongs of this person and you say you've forgiven them for it, but you have their record of wrongs. You haven't forgiven them because you've had a record of wrongs that was nailed to the cross. And God says that your record of wrongs will never be brought up against you again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there someone that you will not talk to because you've not really forgiven them? Is there someone you avoid because you've not forgiven them? Or that you're cold toward because you want to punish them or to let them know of your feelings toward them? You see, forgiveness is not easy. But to harbor unforgiveness is ultimately destructive. Or as someone else put it, the only thing harder than forgiveness is the alternative. The alternative is judgment. Or as George Herbert put it, he who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Simon Wiesenthal, who became famous as a hunter of the Nazi criminals who were hiding around the world after World War II, he died about less than 10 years ago, I think. He's a man who suffered much at the hands of the Nazis. He lived in Poland, Austrian background. I've read that all told, 89 of his relatives lost their lives to the Nazis. In 1944, when he was taken captive, he was a young man, he was an architect. He'd watched the Nazis kill his grandmother on the steps of her home and then cram his mother into a freight car with elderly Jewish women. And he himself tried to commit suicide when he was first captured. We went off to the camps. He was in different camps under the Nazis. And in his book, The Sunflower, he recounts a story from his time as a prisoner in the German camps when his detail was assigned the duty of cleaning the hospital trash out of a hospital that was used to treat German soldiers. And while he was there one day with his Jewish star on, someone came and got him and said, I I need you to come with me. And so he put down what he was doing and the nurse ushered him into a room, a dark musty room, and there was a lone soldier covered with bandage, white gauze covering his face, openings cut out for his mouth, nose, and ears. And the nurse disappeared and went out of the room, leaving him with that figure. The wounded man was an SS officer. And he had called Simon Wiesenthal to give a deathbed confession. He said, my name is Carl, with a raspy voice. And he said, I must tell you this horrible deed, and I must tell you because you're a Jew. And so he began to tell the story about what had happened to him. Simon Wiesenthal would try to pull away from him. The man would grab him and hold on to him. He said, I've got to tell you. I've got to tell you. And so he begged him to listen. And he said, in a town in Russia, 
when the Russians retreated, my unit stumbled onto some booby traps and they killed 30 of our soldiers. And so as an act of revenge, we rounded up 300 Jews and herded them in a three-story house, doused it with gasoline and set it on fire. And we fired grenades at it. We encircled the house with our guns drawn to shoot anyone who tried to escape. He said the screams from the house were horrible. He said one young man came jumping out of the window with a child in his arms and we shot him. And all this time, Simon Wiesenthal sat in silence letting the German soldiers speak. He went on to talk about other atrocities that they had committed, but he kept coming back to that young boy with the black hair and dark eyes falling from the building as target practice for their rifles. And he said, I am left here with my guilt. And then he said this to Simon Wiesenthal. He said, in the last hours of my life, you're with me. I do not know who you are. I know only that you're a Jew, and that is enough. I know what I've told you is terrible. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death time and again, I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him, only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. So here's Wiesenthal standing in his prison clothes, yellow star David, with all that burden weighing down upon him. And Wiesenthal said, at last I made up my mind. And without a word, I left the room. And he wouldn't forgive him. Now I understand that I will never understand the depth of pain that the Jews went through in World War II. This continued to bother Simon Wiesenthal. Years after the war, he went to this man's home where his mother was. And he said that only made it worse because she humanized her son and talked about him. And he said, I finally wrote letters to the best ethicists from different traditions that I could find, Jews, Christians, whatever, to ask them, had I done the right thing? And he said, of the 32 men and women who responded, and some of them were Christians, only six said that Wiesenthal had erred in not forgiving the German. The rest of them said he did the right thing in not forgiving him. Now, I know the difficulty in saying that how can I forgive somebody for somebody else's suffering in that particular way. But as far as I know, Simon Wiesenthal never forgave that man, never found it in his heart to forgive. And in light of the words of Jesus, who carried all of those atrocities, all of that sin in himself on the cross, this text would remind us that if we won't forgive We've not understood the gospel and how great the gospel is, how much we have been forgiven. Otherwise, we cannot withhold forgiveness from others. And so Jesus reminds us here that we must forgive. I cannot imagine what he felt, but the alternatives to not forgiving are revenge, evening the score, and that is not the way of God. In our faith, Christ died even for the most terrible of sins, Our sins are most terrible, and having been forgiven, we must forgive. And if we won't forgive, then we've not understood forgiveness. That does not mean that people don't need to be held accountable, held to justice. But that is not my responsibility, ultimately, to hold people to justice. Vengeance is whose? Mine, saith the Lord. I'm going to be the person who walks with forgiveness.
And then thirdly and finally, let me say this about forgiveness. Forgiveness powerfully displays the gospel and provides hope for restoration and change. In answering Peter's question, should I forgive up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, there's no limit to it, basically. He lays down what is to characterize his people. We are as his salt and light, his agents of change, his bearers of grace. We're to live with a magnanimous spirit of forgiveness. Now, this is really unique in the world. This message is really unique, except where Christianity has impacted other worldviews. Contrast this with the law of karma. Always bothers me when I hear Christians talking about karma. I don't think you understand what karma is. Hindu scholars have worked it out mathematically. I'm told that to balance out all of our wrongs and our injustices with the law of karma, which is a law of justice, that we commit in this lifetime and in the lives to come would take 6,800,000 reincarnations to get it right. But you see, we come bearing a message about our Lord Jesus that we have had all things wiped out for all time by the blood of Jesus who is making all things new. And there is nothing comparable to grace and the hope that grace displayed in forgiveness brings. You know, people are often told today that they should forgive because it's good for you. It removes the other person who has harmed you from having power over you, etc. Like everything else, we have psychologized forgiveness. But as followers of Jesus, as we mature, our greatest motivation, our greatest motivations in all of life are to be theological Rooted in the gospel that has transformed us and the gospel that holds out hope to transform others. We forgive because we desire to be right with the Lord and please Him, for therein is our peace. But we also desire to impact the world with that which has impacted us. That is, as I forgive, I want it to be something that points to my great God who's willing to forgive you of all of your sins. Just as in our marriages... As we walk in our covenant and we forgive one another and live this out in commitment to each other, we are displaying to the world the love of Christ for His church, His bride, His faithfulness to His bride and His bride to Him. And so we want to live in this way. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, every time you accuse someone else, you accuse yourself. Every time you forgive someone else, though, you pass on a drop of water out of the bucket full that God has already given you. That is the water of grace. We become dispensers of the water of grace. I've experienced grace, and I'm dispensing grace so that I keep promoting what my God is doing in His world as He's making things new. Earlier, I mentioned Marshall Blaylock, pastor of First Baptist Charleston, how he's been affected by the shootings in Emmanuel Church. In one interview, he shared a story about a couple from his church who were teaching English in China when Ruth committed the killings. And the couple from his church, First Baptist Charleston, living in China, teaching English, they followed the legal proceedings online. And one day, Blaylock said his members heard a knock on their door, and it was their next-door neighbors, Chinese citizens, who also had been following the case and knew that they were from Charleston. And they had seen the family members who extended their forgiveness to Dylan Rue for killing their loved ones. And here's what they said. They knocked on the door. 
And they said, we want you to tell us about this forgiveness and about this Jesus. We want to know what those people have because we want it. Listen, the only hope we have for overcoming ungrace in this world is to show grace and forgiveness is the key to that taking place. You see, the gospel changes our perspective on everything. The gospel, listen, the gospel looks forward to possibilities. It does not dwell on the past. Because God has forgiven you and me, He's looking forward to what we're going to become. And as you and I become dispensers of grace, we stop looking in the past of what's happened to us or between us, and we start looking to the future in relationship to what this can become. The reason some people struggle with forgiveness is they keep their focus on the offense of the person in the past. They keep that record of wrongs. But what we are called to do is keep our eyes on the cross of Christ where sin was forgiven and a new path forward with the hope of transformation was revealed. And we must approach forgiveness in that manner. While there is no guarantee that a new future will be forged here with some people, even if we forgive them. There is no hope for that ever happening if we don't take the first step of forgiving. Heidi Mitchell said she didn't know if her marriage with Brad would survive, but she knew that if she didn't forgive him, there was no hope for her future. And if we in faith forgive, if we choose to live out the truth, we say believe, we believe such as Colossians 3.13 says, forgive as Christ has forgiven you, then there is the possibility of something new and beautiful developing. We have to be the ones willing to make the first move. Even if the other person or persons never respond the way we would hope, that is what it means to be a person who lives in grace. Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. People with Irish heritage celebrated But in Ireland itself, it wasn't too long ago that Catholics and Protestants were killing each other due to age-old grudges and unforgiveness. Thankfully, peace was achieved somewhat in 1998 in what is known as the Good Friday Agreement. But behind this celebrated agreement, there's a story of a Methodist man, a Methodist man named Gordon Wilson. In 1987, in Belfast, an IRA, Irish Revolutionary Army, bomb went off in a small town west of Belfast among some Protestants who had gathered to honor the war dead on Veterans Day. Eleven people died, 63 were wounded. Gordon Wilson, a devout Methodist who had immigrated north from the Irish Republic to work, he was there with his daughter, 20-year-old daughter, And they were both buried under five feet of concrete and brick. And she said, Daddy, I I love you very much. Those were her last words, Marie said. She suffered severe spinal and brain injuries and died a few hours later in the hospital. A newspaper later proclaimed, no one remembers what the politicians had to say at that time. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he confessed. Speaking from his hospital bed, Gordon Wilson said this, I have lost my daughter. But I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Marie Wilson back to life. I shall pray tonight and every night that God will forgive them. His daughter's last words were words of love, and he determined to live out his life on the plane of love. After his release from the hospital, Gordon Wilson led a crusade for Protestant Catholic reconciliation. Protestant extremists who were planning to retaliate 
chose not to do so because of his influence. He wrote a book about his daughter, spoke out about against the violence, and repeated the refrain, love is the bottom line. He met with the IRA leaders and personally forgave them for what they had done and asked them to lay down their arms. He said, I know that you've lost loved ones just like me. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilled. The Irish Republic ultimately made Wilson a member of its Senate. When he died in 1995, the Irish Republic, Northern Ireland, and all of Great Britain honored this ordinary Christian man who'd gained the respect of his whole nation because of this uncommon act of grace. I want to ask you this morning, have you forgiven everyone? Some people say, well, they haven't asked for my forgiveness, Pastor. Am I still called to extend it? Well, certainly if they ask for forgiveness, we're to extend it. But even if they don't, we're called to have a spirit of forgiveness in our hearts toward them, even if they never ask for it. Stephen, as he was dying, being stoned, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Peter, when he was languishing in that prison, waiting to be killed, Remembering all the Christians had abandoned him, he said, Lord, please don't hold it to their account. And the Lord Jesus certainly implied it when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he told us in that prayer, that framework prayer, to pray for our daily what? Bread. Daily bread. So this is a daily attitude of prayer. And you'll recall in that daily prayer, forgive us our sins as we Forgive others who sin against us. In those instances where the person is dead or there is no repentance on their part. On our side, we're called to walk with the spirit of forgiveness. We are, as John Piper notes, to follow the directions at that point to love our enemies, right? And to do good to them, Matthew 5, 44. And we're called to forbear, to have patience with one another in Colossians 3. Have that spirit of forgiveness. When I moved from my church in Alabama to Kentucky, I'd been there eight years. The first two years were great. The next three years were not so great. The last three years were good. Had some bad actors and some difficult days and some guys who did some really underhanded things. It almost made me lose my faith in the church. But I'll never forget on more than one occasion when I was sitting in my little house, my parsonage in Kentucky, my phone would ring. And on the other end was a man from that church. They called me Brother Don. Brother Don, this is James so-and-so. I just want to call and tell you I really got duped in what was going on. I now know some people were telling some really wrong things and lying and I just want to ask you, will you forgive me? And I was able to say with joy in my heart, James, I I forgave you a long time ago. We are brothers in the Lord, and all is well. And that's the spirit by which we must live in our lives. Maybe you're here today and you've not received Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You need to be forgiven. What a great day for you to embrace Christ in the gospel. Have you really forgiven all to show you have a new heart? Or are you harboring things against people? Are there people you're harboring something against 
and they don't even know it. You at least ought to have the grace enough to go and tell them and to try to work it out. Real forgiveness lets the other person go free. It's an act of a will. Hopefully, emotions will follow. But if you, you can't say you're forgiven, though, if you're still holding something over people, being passive-aggressive, being cold, keeping distance to prove a point, Jesus said we must forgive. Would you stand with me as we prepare to sing our hymn of invitation? We won't be long today. We'll give you the opportunity to respond. Our hymn of commitment is Amazing Grace. And as we pray, I want to ask you just to take a moment right now to search your heart. Lord, if there's anybody that needs to come to any mind right now that needs to be forgiven, Lord, I pray that you would help people to lay it down as a demonstration that they've understood the grace of God and that they truly can walk in freedom and liberty in light of the gospel. Thank you for your amazing grace can't believe you'd save us for how horrible we have been. God, help us to see the small things that have been done against us for what they are compared to what you've done for us and to forgive. Lord, I just pray that in this room there may be those that are struggling in marriages where there's a lack of forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that um, as Heidi Mitchell took that first step, not knowing what the future was, but truly to forgive, that God, forgiveness will be granted. God, we pray that you would just help us, Lord, as your people in a world full of hate and hurt to be those that walk in forgiveness, that we can display to others our great God who's willing to forgive them. We trust you, Lord, with all matters of judgment, ultimately all matters, Lord, of vengeance that belongs to you. Just help us to trust you and to be your people who walk in love. So, Lord, we thank you for this text. Help us now as we sing, accomplish in our hearts what you want in Jesus' name.